0: Brothers and sisters, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1, and that's in your uh, pew Bible on page 760 if you don't have your own copy of Scripture. Um, If you do have your own copy of Scripture, you just go two-thirds of the way through and it'll magically appear as you thumb through it. And if you don't know where it is, that's okay. Um, You'll be fine. But Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1. So we're going to be walking through this text, and I'll actually be reading this chapter in its entirety, and I won't have time to be able to walk through it verse by verse, but I'm going to highlight different themes or different aspects of what this chapter is about. But before we get there, I want to give a a few preliminary points about Joel first. First of all, the minor prophets should be read as a whole, and I said this about Hosea, But it even stands right now in Joel to bear mentioning again that the minor prophets should be read as one book. In fact, that's how historically that they were read. They were all put on one scroll together, and it was called the Book of the Twelve historically. And so all of these prophets go together. And I would encourage you to spend an hour, hour and a half, just sitting and reading through them and just noting in your Bible different themes that come up because they are secondly linked together thematically. They're linked together thematically because all of these prophets, they're, they're minor, not because they're short, even though I just prayed for short Joel a moment ago. The Joel that we have is not short, but neither is the, Joel, the prophet Joel is not short either. Um, short prophecy of Joel. And so they are minor in the sense that they are small books. And so they all fit together on this great great scroll, and it wasn't just a matter of saving Uh, you know, leather scrolls that they were putting together. Maybe that was part of it, but they they found that these 12 books go together thematically as it relates to what was called the Babylonian exile. Babylonian exile, Babylon. Okay. Um, And uh, within the Babylonian exile, you can see that there is a pre-Babylonian Exile prophets, the exile prophets, those who wrote during the exile and those who wrote after the exile. So that's how all of these, and it's, sometimes it's hard to gather your footing because you're like, wait, where's this guy? Um, and that's what we're going to feel with Joel here in a little bit because there is no historical marker as there is for some of these. Like even Hosea, we've got historical marker and so forth. There's, we don't have those kind of things with Joel, but they are linked to God's judgment upon His people. Why do bad things happen to bad people. <laughs> and Why do bad things happen to what you would presume to be good people? And that's what the minor prophets are doing. In fact, the third point I want to make about Joel and about the minor prophets is that the prophets, you should think about them not as though they are just looking in some kind of uh, distant future. A lot of times when we think of a prophet, we think, hey, I'm not a prophet. I can't tell the future. That's part of what being a prophet is, but more so As one commentator said, the prophets comment on the Mosaic Law. That's really key to understand in understanding the prophets. And that's why you'll hear a lot of these allusions, allusions, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N-S, allusions to the Mosaic Covenant. Because the prophets, another thing you could call them, would be lawyers. They serve as lawyers who are coming in the courtroom to indict Israel for breaking covenant with God. And so that's what links all of these guys together, is that they are saying, Israel, the reason why you're suffering is because of this. Because you've broken trust, you've, you've been unfaithful to your husband as we saw in Hosea. Well, now Joel is talking about destruction that is coming. Destruction that is coming. And so we come to the book of Joel, and most of the prophets have some kind of historical marker, like I said, but Joel does not have that. We, don't, we, we just know that he's the son of Pethuel. That's all we know about him. And scholars are all across the board. Is he pre-exilic? Is he before the Babylonian exile? Is he during the exile, or is he after? And the answer is, yeah, all the above. That's where all these scholars, they all land in all these different places. I am of the persuasion that, that Joel is prophesying... Post-exilic, so of four or five hundred BC. So again, you want to think of 586 lodged in your mind, and then after that, 400. Remember the BCs you count down to zero, and then ADs you count up from zero. And so I think that he's probably prophesying after the exile, and I think he's also prophesying before the exile. But you know, that's because I'm I don't know. So you're welcome. You're welcome for that little helpful thing. That he's before and after, I don't think he's probably during, but it could be during, and I think there's a reason for that. I think that there's a reason why there is no historical marker in Joel, because a lot of times what we can do with Scripture, unwittingly, is that we can say, well, that happened in 586, and it doesn't mean anything to us, and even even some of us may be saying, why are we even in the minor prophets? I mean, come on, That's that's like a long time ago. And we can do that in our own thinking, and I think that that Joel particularly doesn't give us that historical marker so that we can see that this is something that continues to be a problem with God's people. And in fact, scholars think that uh, this book was used as a lament liturgy for God's people. So when you're struggling, when you're going through suffering, when things happen in your life that are just too much to bear, turn to the book of Joel. And you'll find solace in there to know that you're not alone. That there are others, and not only before the exile, not during the exile, and not after the exile, but in the entire history of God's people that they have suffered. That's the story that we see, and that's why these difficulties happen. And I think that Joel, for us, if you're wrestling, if you're struggling, if you feel like you are beaten down and downcast, then Joel is a book for you. If things are going well for you, then Joel is also for you because just wait. Just wait. In fact, some of you might be thinking, why are we looking at these minor prophets? Weren't they just for Israel? And I do wonder what we do with the prophets. Like well, I, I don't even know where that is. I don't even know what book. I don't even know what city he's talking about. I'm just going to go on to Romans, or I'm going to go to Matthew, or I'm going to go to some book that's a little easier. Well, first of all, we're doing the Minor Prophets because all of Scripture is for our benefit. It's for our edification, and sometimes you got to work a little harder when you got broccoli and carrots on your plate, right? You got to chew a little harder, and so we're going to chew a little bit harder. To get there. We have to recognize that, yes, Joel, and this is something that I, I, I think will, it is good to bear in mind as it relates to any kind of interpretive work in the Bible, as it relates to the prophets, is that Joel is definitely preaching to a geopolitical entity called Israel. That's true. He's preaching to this group, this ethnic group called Israel. And they had a king, and then they didn't have a king, and then they had governors and all that. So yes, there's some specificity, but I think Joel and also the, all the minor prophets challenge us because the prophets, if you dig down deeper, aren't just preaching to this geopolitical entity. They are preaching to particular people that are in that geopolitical entity to come out from amongst them. Right, where Paul says not all Israel is Israel. Right, So, so what the prophets are doing is they're, they're calling out to God's people, generally speaking, and those who respond to, to those calls are God's people. Does that make sense? So he's saying Israel, repent, and not all Israel is going to repent. Only a few people will come forward. And that's the case even with the church. As you look at the church, not all the church is the church. Not everything that we see is the church. And so these commands are calling those who would really believe from those who would just pay lip service. In fact, I've said that many times that there's a huge problem in the North American church today where there are a lot of religious folk who go to church and pay lip service to God. They say, I love my neighbor and yet they pass by on the road when they see their brother or sister in need. And so what God is doing through the book of Joel is He's saying, tough stuff is going to happen. Are you going to be able to see God in the midst of that difficulty? And if you can, by His Spirit, as we'll look at in chapter 2, if you can see that by His Spirit, out of gratitude, to be able to come out and say, I don't want to be like all those religious folks. I don't want to be like every other Christian in name. I want to follow Jesus and follow Him wholeheartedly. Well, he's calling, Joel is calling you out this morning so that you would hear God's voice and follow Him. So the question this morning for Joel chapter 1 is simply this. Upon what do you trust? Upon what do you trust? That should be the ringing question throughout Joel. What are you trusting in really? What do you really trust in when things get difficult? What do you trust in? What we'll see is that there should arise what's called a, called a cognitive dissonance in psychology. That is, a lot of times, I experienced this in my own life, that there ought to be a little bit of cognitive dissonance in all of us this morning that we, we say we believe something, but then our actions prove otherwise. It's kind of like the person who says, yeah, I'm on a diet, and then they go eat a Twinkie. There should be some kind of cognitive distance there. And so the same story here in Joel, as you hear this, you should say, ah, I, I, I don't get it. That's good. That's a good place to be. So if you feel a little on edge or a little on your heels, that's good. And that's the point. That's the point as we look at all these prophets. So the question for you this morning, upon what, upon whom do you trust? So let's look at Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation." What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against My land, powerful and beyond number, Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord." The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. Oh, how the beasts groan! The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To You, O Lord, I call. Fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for You because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness." Utter devastation. And God is calling out to all of his people, particularly the religious leaders, right? The priests, the ministers. But he's calling out to the entire priesthood of all believers. He's saying, devastation has come. And so the question is, why? Why did this happen? And there's an ongoing discussion. If you look at verse 4, these locusts, right? whether these locusts here are real locusts or whether it's an army. Well, just like I did in in my intro, it's a both and. So these are real locusts in chapter 1. And then it's an army that is likened to locusts in chapter 2. Okay, we can't do all of the, the exegesis right now. But just have that, lodge in your mind that this is a both and, that God has brought decimation to all of his people by real locusts. And I was talking to some guys earlier before the service that that we don't have an appreciation for locust problems. But whether you know it or not, there is an actual group of uh, locust control experts that go and they make sure that they spray the larvae in the Middle East, because if they don't, the entire crop will be decimated. I think that just happened in Kenya, Uh, somebody said last year or the year before, that it absolutely devastated the land and we haven't seen anything like that because fortunately we have people that go around and spray locust larvae but there is a utter destruction so the question is why why did this happen why did this happen well if you remember from our time way back in Deuteronomy uh, and you can listen to that sermon in your own time but in Deuteronomy 28 You remember Israel, as they were initiating this covenant with God, as God was initiating this covenant with them, and they were saying, yes, all these things we will do, they stood on these mountains of Gerizim and Ebal. And they they said these, these blessings will happen if you're faithful to the covenant, and if you're unfaithful to the covenant, these curses will happen to you. And this is what we read in Deuteronomy 28, verse 38. He says, if you break the covenant with God, Israel, you will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. Now what we hear here in Joel? That the. There is no wine. It's dried up. The riverbeds have been dried up. All of this, this curse that God promised has come upon them. Quite literally and quite agriculturally, this happened. we got a flavor for that. Every time there's some kind of crazy thing that happens in the world, everybody goes and buys up the bread or toilet paper, and we're like, oh, I didn't know. Well, that's, this, this, is a, this is worse than a toilet paper shortage. This is worse than a bread shortage. This is an utter destruction of all livelihood because they depended upon their fields producing in order to live, not just to have the convenience of sliced white wonder bread. So why would the Lord do this? And I've already alluded to this, that they've broken the covenant, but I think it goes deeper than that. I don't think the Lord, and I think so many of us in our minds have this idea that God is is out to get you all the time. And I think we read these like, yep, see, I knew that God's ready to just bring locusts, you know. Oh, I knew if I said something bad, God's going to strike me down with lightning. That's not the way that God works. First of all, he was gracious to let them know what was going to (laughs) happen. But secondly, I believe that God brings this destruction in Israel's life, and God brings destruction into your own lives, because He loves you too much to leave you as you are. I think that God loves you so much that He doesn't want you to build your life on the surety of vineyards that produce. On a livelihood that you have procured through good studies. I think that God loves you too much to let you build your life on anything but Him. And so what He's in the business of doing is to take it all down. There's a beautiful song that Ashley shared with me earlier this week by Jess Ray. It's called "Water, Wind, and Fire." Right. I encourage. I, I'll link that in the weekly uh, this week, um, because a lot of times, what's beautiful about this particular song is that we want the the wind to blow cool upon our face we want the good things we want the warmth of the fire but god is in the business of blowing you over god is in the business of burning you up of refining you so that you depend only on him so what you can you can fill in the blank with whatever junk you're going through right now whatever difficulty whether it be because of your sin or somebody else's sin the lord lets you sit in that because he loves you to bring you down to the foundation of your life. He loves you too much to let you settle for fleeting pleasures. Earthly pleasures that will not last. Look at verse 5. What is this first command that He gives to His people? He says, awake! Awake! The need for the church today is to wake up. The need for each one of us is to wake up. Many of us have been lulled to sleep as the author of Hebrews talks about that we get drifting away or that we get lulled to sleep. And that's, that's the world's way. That's Satan's way of getting us to not give priority to the spiritual things in our lives. And so we get distracted and then we get tired and we get lazy and then it doesn't matter anymore. And then before you know it, your faith is flimsy. So many of us can be lulled to sleep with what? Pleasures, fleeting pleasures. I believe that God Himself is the ultimate thing that we're after in these pleasure-seeking. But we satisfy ourselves with fleeting pleasures and fleeting comforts. A blanket that, that never fits. You pull it up nice and tight and your feet get exposed. And that, that's what we settle for a lot of times. Is that if I can just have that thing that I want so much, that job or that relationship, and we think that that fleeting pleasure and that tiny comfort will be enough. So who is to awake? I've already said the church, but, but specifically Joel, what he's talking about, he says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine. And so what leads someone to be a drunkard? Why? Why does somebody run to alcohol for comfort, for pleasure, right? Because it's not just wine. He's not just using it as a utility to, to kind of waste away his life, right? It's sweet wine. See that in the second half of verse 5? Because of the sweet wine. It's a specific technical way of talking about the best wine. This really good stuff that you're oh man, I just... I'm going to run to that. I wanna I wanna have that satisfy my longings. And isn't that why we run to anything for comfort and for pleasure? So you fill in the blank because this is not a sermon on being a teetotaler. This is it not a sermon on why drinking is the problem? I fear that many are at risk of trading the promises of God for sweet wine. Sweet wine is not simply about alcohol. I believe that this wine metaphor is a metaphor for any of God's blessings in life. God provided the grapes to produce the wine. And and what can happen a lot of times is that, and this is what's happening with the drunkards, is, is that we use God's blessings on ourselves and drink to excess Thinking about only what we want and what we need. And that was not the point of having sweet wine. The point of sweet wine was for you to enjoy it and then for you to welcome other people into that party, into that, that enjoying of all of God's blessings. And so, what God's people had done is they had, they had taken all of God's blessings, as we do, taken all of these material blessings. And we say, hey, I'm going to spend it on myself, I'm going to use it in excess. Family is a good thing. I'm going, to have, I'm going to do everything revolving around family. Sweet wine is good, so I'm going to drink all of it up and I'm not going to share it. And that's the indictment that God has against His people is that they aren't using His blessings to bless other people. They spend it on their own pleasure. And so also the church is at risk of using the material blessings of God for ourselves rather than sharing with those who lack. Isn't the picture of the early church that we read about in Acts 2 in Sunday school, isn't that picture of the early church what grabbed your heart when you first started walking with the Lord? Everyone shared with the others as they had need. Don't you want that? I want that. I want to be able to say, you know, what I have is not mine, but it's for all of us. These gifts are not just for me, but let me share this with other people. So our call, Redeemer, is to live from the blessing of God with our good jobs and good relationships that we have that we take for granted to proactively share it with other people. God has blessed us in very specific ways as individuals and as a community of this church so that we would share it with others because if we're not thinking about how we can share it with other people, then we will be guilty of being the drunkards that Joel warns us about. Yes, celebrate that God has blessed you with a great job. Yes, celebrate that you've got enough in your savings account to be able to to not worry. But just don't keep piling it up. Don't keep building bigger barns so that you can have more security in this life because God will decimate it. God will take it away if you're trusting in it. So, let me give you a couple practical ways. Here's a way to share the blessings that you have and you can probably think of a, I know you can think of a whole lot more, but as I was putting this together, just one way to do this is just have $5 gas cards in your glove box. Bear, I'm getting really granular here. Have $5 gift cards to a gas station in your glove box so that when you see, and, or, or take them, you know, use the, the economy of your time to say, this is the most inconvenient time that I can think of that somebody needs help. Maybe that's because God wants it to be the most inconvenient time, and He wants to reveal Himself to you in a, in a new way, that you wouldn't have, if you put it on your calendar, okay God, I'm going to be ready on at Thursday from 2 to 4, I'm ready to help somebody. That's not how God works, because He wants to know, if you're walking on the side of the road, if you're opened up to His overtures, remember what we looked at, right, with Jesus with Nicodemus, the Spirit of God blows where He wills, and you don't know where He comes from or where He's going, but don't you want to be swept up in that? And the way to do that is to say, Lord, whatever you would have me do today, have me do. I will plan my path, but you plant my footsteps where you want them to go. And let me be ready and willing to be receptive to your Spirit. Don't let me use the blessings of my vehicle or the gas cards that I could have in my glove box. Don't let, them use, don't let me use them just for myself, but for the benefit of others. Because somebody needs you. To be that for them. Another way is maybe maybe you meet somebody who's homeless. And you could drive them to Miracle Hill. You could maybe pay a night for them in a hotel. Or maybe you meet somebody who's jobless. Maybe the next day at work you could talk to your boss. About, hey, do we need any part-time workers? I met this person named Bobby. And he needs a job. Be proactively thinking about how you can be an answer to somebody's unspoken prayer, somebody's need that they have. Because God has blessed you abundantly so that you can give it, share it with other people. The sweet wine is meant to be enjoyed with others. There's a, there's a problem if somebody drinks alone, right? thinking of George Thurgood. He drinks alone. There's a problem with that. But if, you, but if you're having a party with other people, there's great joy in that, right? And that's what God wants to do with this sweet wine, with these blessings that He's given you. When you look, don't fret, don't be nervous, say, "God, what would you have me do with these things and that you've entrusted me with?" And so utter devastation ensues in our lives to take our lives down to the foundation of who we are as people, that we say, we believe, but then here's an opportunity and another opportunity and another opportunity to actually obey God as opposed to just saying we believe it. You feel that like cognitive dissonance? I hope so. Because there, there has to be a, an aligning of what we say we believe and what we actually do. And the Lord, by His Spirit, is graciously doing that. If you have ears to hear, He wants to align those things in your life so that what you say and what you do are integrated, are the same thing. So God wants His people to wake up to these spiritual realities that are swirling around us all the time. All the time. The argument that you have with your friend or your spouse or your coworker is not merely a difference of opinion. There are spiritual realities that are happening in that moment. The stresses that keep you up at night are not simply or not necessarily a call to have a sleep aid. It could be, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. There are spiritual realities going on at two in the morning that are waking you up. The pain and destruction that God allows into our lives, you need to hear this, the pain and destruction that God allows into our lives is a reminder to cry out to Him. That's why God does that. That's why He lets the dog off the chain just a little bit. Because that is supposed to drive you to call out to Him. Not to try to fix everything right now. But to cry out to Him, Lord, I I, I don't know what to do about all these locusts. I can't swap enough of them. I can't spray enough of them. Look at verse 8. He tells us to do something else. He says, awake. In verse 5 and then verse 8, He says, lament. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for, for the bridegroom of her youth. So the Lord takes away some things like He did for Job. Because he loved him? And sometimes he keeps good things away from us. Right? The picture here is a a bride who is mourning because her groom died the night before they were to get married. All this time spent on thinking about the wedding, and the Lord takes that person away. And they are groaning inside, they're hurting inside, they wear sackcloth instead of the white dress that they had purchased. And so sometimes the Lord keeps us from having good things in our lives to make us lament and mourn. It is a good thing to get married. But our hearts can be so fickle that they are duped into believing that the blessing will bring us ultimate joy, that marriage will not fulfill you. Perhaps you're pining away for a good thing right now. Maybe there's a really good thing, and and it is a good thing. But you're pining away for it, but the Lord is withholding it. Maybe you want a child, and the Lord is not letting you have that right now. The Lord withholds it because He loves you. I know that's hard to hear. It doesn't mean He's trying to teach you a lesson. You need to hear that too. It doesn't mean that there's some secret sin under a a stone that you need to to uncover so that you can say, oh, this isn't happening, this blessing isn't happening, therefore some sin must be involved in my life. No, no, no. He wants you at the bare minimum to cry out to Him, to seek His face in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of difficulty. Not to teach you a lesson, not to, to unveil some sin necessarily. That could be the case. That doesn't mean you need to be some kind of detective and try to go into the inner recesses of your heart. Really, what we see in Joel is to lament, to cry out to God. It's that simple. The question is, Is will you cling to Him? Or will you cling to the blessing, the thing that you want, really? Just because you work hard doesn't mean it's on the right things, Right? The Lord wants you to focus your attention on the right thing, on Him. See, the picture we see throughout this first chapter of Joel is that we, sh- we should run to Him. Look at verse 11. Go, go to verse 11. He says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. They aren't called to keep tilling, they aren't called to just keep trying to find something and fix it. He doesn't say put irrigation in. He says, wail. Turn to God. Seek His face. See, the the farmers were spending their energy tilling the soil, trying to get the right pH of their soil so that it would produce the right crop. The vine dressers were staying up all night thinking that if I I wed this grape to this grape, maybe that will cause it to grow. The answer, though, that they had misplaced trust in their ability and what they could do. Just like we do all the time. Every single time we do it. When something difficult happens, what's your knee-jerk reaction? What do I got to do to fix this? Maybe what you need to do is call out to wail, to lament, to mourn, to be sad, to call out to God. To say, I have no hope but you, I don't want to put my hope in getting this problem fixed. I want to see you. I want to see you in all of your glory and all of who you are. Right? The Lord says it's not just a matter of working harder. Just because you move dirt from one side of the field to the other side of the field and you're sweating and you're working hard, that doesn't mean that you're doing the right work. Just because you're working hard See, the people of God can scurry scurry around busying themselves with many, many things. And Joel reminds us that there are essentials to following God. Really simple stuff that you could preach every Sunday because we are so forgetful as a people. Lamenting. Fasting. Praying. Hearing God's Word and Scripture. All of these things are simple. And yet God is calling each of us out to say, I want to hear from you, God. Talk to me. Speak to me. Show me your ways. He says, I have and I will. But do the simple things that I will reveal myself to you. Getting to the ground floor of what we're going to build our lives on. God wants to take us down so that He can build us up with the right things. You see, God's people had forgotten that. They had forgotten that. And you see in verse, verse 15, Alas for the day, the day of the lord is near and as destruction from the almighty it comes see a lot of times if we're not familiar with what god says and in communing with him by his spirit a lot of times we can warp what is true right israel had warped the day of the lord like just just you wait gentiles just you wait babylon when the day of the lord comes you'll be decimated and the lord says no 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 the day of the lord is for you the day of the lord is to take you down to help you see that your trust is misplaced. See, they had thought it was liberation from their enemies and they had missed the mark on what their enemy truly was. They have to define their enemies a little differently. And that's what we've got to do too. Instead of looking out there for our enemies, we have to say, Lord, what would You do to decimate me? How have I offended You, O God? Please help me to pursue You truly, not just in word. What I think is fascinating about chapter 1 is that there is no promise of what comes next. It ends pretty stark. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, verse 20, because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. That's how it ends. Chapter 2 is coming, but He wants us this week, Redeemer, to sit in chapter 1 and say, Lord, what do You want to do in my heart? Maybe, maybe you're not experiencing this, this love that we're talking about for God. Maybe, maybe you're just going through the motions. Maybe, this is your, maybe your Christianity is just something that you are okay with and you can manage it. And, and as long as you don't sin that way, then everything is okay. The Lord wants to take you deeper this morning. And He wants you to do that through lamenting. Through crying. Through mourning. That's a good place to be. He does it because He loves you. Not because He's trying to harangue you. To get back to the essentials of our faith. So are you struggling reading your Bible? Do the hard work of just spending five minutes. Just set, set the bar right there. Five minutes. I'm just going to read it for five minutes. I'm going to read a psalm. Just do that. You're going to have to train, retrain yourself to the essentials of your faith. Say, Lord, just give me strength to do five minutes of reading the Bible. Five minutes of prayer. Five minutes of journaling. Getting back to the essentials of your faith. And I promise you that by His Spirit, He'll cause your heart to be built up, to be enlivened again. So maybe you're bored with your faith. Maybe you're tired of life. Maybe things are... A little too much right now and the Lord would say why don't you just go back to the basics a b c and by doing that I will be faithful to help you to meet you in those moments of five minutes yes the Lord can take a seed and he can make it grow I want to encourage you to look at each other as God's means of grace in your life that we as a church have covenanted together that this is not just because we happen to be in the same room at the same time, but we have made a point to be here together and that we really believe in the communion of the saints that we're going to be reciting here in a moment from the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in that, so much so that we are going to make commitments to each other, to call each other, to text each other, to pray for each other, to reach out to each other, that we really believe in the fellowship and, and that this fellowship can reveal more of God to you. Our fellowship together is a spiritual discipline. And God will reveal Himself if we take those steps of faith. So, Redeemer, may God help us to prioritize the most essential things in our life and to ask the question, upon what do we build our lives on? Upon what do we trust? And who do you trust, really? When when push comes to shove, when difficult things happen, where do you run? Where does your mind drift to? And the Lord is calling out to you to call out to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You love us so much that You devastate us at times. That You bring locusts quite literally to eat up our bank accounts, to eat up our livelihoods, To make life difficult so that we cry out to you. Not because you take some strange pleasure in being mean, but your love is severe and painful at times because you want us to see the goodness that you are, the lasting pleasure, the comfort that will supply all of our needs. We pray that as a church, as Christ the Redeemer Church, that we would be the kind of people who cling to, who cry out to You when difficult things happen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.